So the title for this evening's talk is Reflecting Wisely on the Things of Life. Actually, not on the things of life, with the things of life, in relationship to the things of life. Before I came here on Friday, I spent five days with my mom in Florida. And my dad passed away about a year and a half ago, so she's been on her own. She's 76 years old, and she's actually doing very, very well. But I'd like to check in with her and see how things are going. And I called her today, and she had lots of news for me. And one of them was some news that actually was like music to my ears, because I've been trying to get her to understand some of the principles of meditation for about, well, about 20 years. And I honestly didn't think that I was making any headway. And I didn't even think that she understood either what I did or what I was involved with or what I was trying to uh, introduce her to. But t- today, when, when she was, this morning, when she was uh, taking the garbage out to the uh, chute where you have to drop it, um, she actually had to go down in the elevator. She lives in a condominium. And when she got to the bottom floor, the elevator door didn't open. And it didn't open. <laughs> so there she was in the elevator, and she started to panic, of course. And she started to scream, and she started to kick the door, and she really started to freak out because she was kind of caught in this elevator. And it's summertime in Florida, and a lot of the people who live in the condominium were away. So she knew that, too, so she didn't know if anybody was going to hear her. So she just really started, you know, really was in this panic, and then she remembered. She remembered to breathe, which is what I've been trying to tell her, <laughs> that you don't have to get into this panic, just just remember that the best thing that's going to work for you is just to stay calm and to breathe. And I've been trying to teach her to breathe probably for about 15 years. And she said, so I stopped panicking and I started to breathe. And she said, and then I started to feel more calm. And what she realized was there was a phone in the elevator. (laughs) Just for these very reasons. So she picked up the phone, and it was a real telephone. And she got the operator, and she told the operator that she was stuck in the elevator. And she said, okay, I'll call the fire department, and we'll send the fire department there. And then she sat down. And no, actually, she said she started to kick the door again, but this time it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't out of panic. It was really to try to get somebody's attention. It was a real genuine, uh, wise response to the situation. But still no response, so she sat down. And she said she just sat down on the floor of the elevator, and she was feeling very relaxed and very calm. And then the door opened. I said, all by itself? (laughs) She said, yeah, it just opened all by itself. (laughs) There wasn't anybody there. There wasn't anybody trying to get into the elevator or heard her response. They just... She was just sitting there, and the door opened. So she said she got out, <laughs> and she went to the phone, and she called the, the operator again. She said, you don't have to come and get me. I'm out. And the whole thing just dropped away. 
So it was just one of many things that she wanted to tell me today, but I, but I was so moved. I was so touched by that report because it really did show that something had gone in. And for an elderly woman in that kind of situation, I can imagine it would be very terrifying, very scary, to not know what was going to happen and to be caught in this very small little space all by herself. So I was very proud of her. (laughs) And I think she handled it very well. And it really was a wonderful metaphor, a wonderful story for what I actually wanted to talk about tonight. Because what I wanted to um, go into, what I wanted to explore with you, was that very relationship to the conditions of life. And what it is that we actually bring to the conditions of life that causes the suffering that we feel when we go through our life. And I think the example really points out that it brings the question to mind, is it really the conditions themselves that are causing the suffering, or is it the way that we're relating to it? Is it the conditions, the actual situation that's going on within us, around us, that is the cause for our pain and our suffering? Or is it bring into question whether it's something within our own mind? With what we're bringing in our own mind. Conditions of life arise, whatever they may be, particularly when they're unpleasant, when we don't like the way things are going, when they seem out of our control. We kick and we scream. We get mad, we can get angry, we get frustrated. We throw a temper tantrum, you know. But... Oftentimes it doesn't make any difference, but generally we don't actually know that there may be a different way to respond. For most people, and maybe maybe all of you are quite evolved now and quite enlightened so that you actually do know that you have a choice, but for the most part, and I know we all get caught and we get trapped, we really don't know in those situations that we have a choice, or if we do know, we don't know what it is. We don't know how to get out of it. We may have an intimation that it's something that we're bringing in the way that we're relating, but there's nothing we really can do. In those moments, we say we're caught by life. We're caught. You know, the conditions, whatever's happening in this particular situation, when, when, the, when the anger or the frustration, uh, that sense of helplessness arises, we feel caught. This is actually the problem. The problem is this sense of feeling caught, like we don't have a choice, or we don't know what that choice is. In these moments, it doesn't seem like there's very much wisdom, very much wisdom to be able to relate to the conditions of life in a useful or a beneficial way. This being caught by life, the Buddha, this is what the Buddha talked about. The word for it in Pali, it's Pali, the language that we receive the teachings in, is called dukkha. Dukkha, D-U-K-K-H-A. It's a wonderful word, and it's a word that, for those of you who come into the Dharma, start to make have a real relationship with. This dukkha, dukkha is the suffering of life. And I like to use the word dukkha rather than suffering because because it means so many different things. 
The definition of dukkha, it takes on many, many different faces. In the text, dukkha is birth. Actually being born into this human existence is dukkha. So there we go. There's the start. Aging is dukkha. When we become frail and gray, we lose our vitality and we start to wrinkle. This is actually what it says in the text. Death is dukkha, dying, sorrow, the sorrow arising from the loss of what and who we love, the sorrow that arises from the misfortunes we encounter, the sorrow of not getting what we want, and this sorrow intensifies into despair and desperation, all different degrees of this sorrow. The body is dukkha when it's racked with unpleasant Feelings and painful feelings in the body. And the mind is dukkha when it's filled with painful and unpleasant feelings. So we know this. We know this experience of dukkha. And it's a prime, a prime, uh, a concept within the Buddha's teachings because everything the Buddha taught was really about dukkha and the end of dukkha, or suffering and the end of suffering. Everything the Buddha taught was contained in the Four Noble Truths, which is the essence of the Buddha's teaching, that which he realized when he was sitting under the Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya, India, which Christopher was talking about last night, 2,500 years ago. What the Buddha realized, what he understood after sitting under the Bodhi tree and attaining complete liberation, that the first noble truth is to understand dukkha. The second noble truth is to relinquish the cause of dukkha. The third noble truth is to realize nirvana. Nirvana is freedom from dukkha. And the fourth noble truth is to cultivate the path to freedom. Usually we hear to cultivate the path to freedom, but freedom means the freedom from dukkha, the freedom from suffering. This word liberation, freedom, enlightenment, awakening, it's something that the heart is really drawn to. Not because we arrive at some kind of exalted state of existence, but because the suffering goes out of life. And there's the possibility for us to live in this life with that, that ease, with that peace, with that contentment, when we're no longer struggling with the conditions of life. We're no longer in, in fight with the conditions of life. And this is really what the teachings are about. The path, when the Buddha speaks about the path to the way of freedom, the path essentially explains to us how to examine the causes and conditions in our life, in our mind, in our our heart, which support the existence of suffering. To examine these causes and conditionings which support the existence of this perpetuation of the dissatisfaction and the pain that we feel in our own mind. 
why is it so important to examine these causes and conditions? Because the only way the suffering will end is with the ending of these causes. Only when these causes come to an end will the pain come to an end. For my mom, she had some tools. She was able to help herself. She was able, something kicked in in that moment where she was able to help herself come to the end of some extreme suffering, potential for some extreme suffering. There was enough wisdom that arose in that moment, enough awareness that clicked in through, through either through her conversations with me or, or other, other uh, conditions that arose in her life that she was able to stop and say, oh, no, I don't need to do that right now. That's just going to add <laughs> more of a problem. I need to stop. I need to be quiet. I need to breathe. <laughs> and then she saw the phone. This really, this understanding of what brings an end to the suffering really has to be something that we, we can understand well enough to apply that we understand well enough to practice. It can't just be an intellectual understanding. It can't be some just nice theory, you know, some that we find the Buddhist teachings fascinating and, and intellectual and philosophical, which actually happens for a lot of scholars, a lot of people who love reading the teachings, but they actually aren't putting it so much into practice because it's not going to make a difference in our life until we actually put it into practice. And the entire body of teachings that has come down to us is filled with tools and resources for how to pay attention and what to pay attention to. How to pay attention, which is the practice that we're doing here, and what to actually gear that attention to so that we can examine these causes in our own mind that are bringing about the discontentment. And this, is, this comes out of the Buddha's compassion for humanity to help us wake up. To help us wake up from the dream of life and to be free. To really be free, which is everybody's birthright as a human being. Essentially, for the most part, we are sleepwalking. We're not awake. We are half asleep or sometimes or, or maybe all completely asleep in our life. And I see this more and more in ways that I'm just not able to access certain aspects of my being where the work is still, the work still needs to be done. It's those moments when you or I, we just don't see what we're doing in these moments. We don't know that we're caught. Or we know that we're caught, but we don't know the way out. We don't know how to find our way out. And so in those moments, we can't say that I'm bad or you're bad or what we're doing is wrong or, or this, it shouldn't be happening this way. It's just that we don't see. We don't have access to the wisdom in those moments. So the tendency to judge ourselves or make ourselves wrong or make other people wrong comes out of our own misunderstanding, our own ignorance, and our, our perpetuation of those causes that lead to more pain. 
like to share this um, autobiography in five short chapters, which some of you have heard, but it's something that I hear again and again and I feel so delighted by because it really does, it's like our life in five short chapters. You know, it really points to uh, this particular uh, path that we're on. Chapter one, I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. I have a choice. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down another street. <laughs> so this is, it seems it takes time, you know, before we get that we have a choice to walk down another street. But we can find ourselves again and again just falling in that same hole and wondering how we got in there until we wake up and we actually see where we are. Chapter 3 is really the pivotal the pivotal chapter in this story when this person says my eyes are open I know where I am I have a choice you know I hear those words and I they, they are liberating words my eyes are open I know where I am this is really what we're practicing here <laughs> encouraging you again and again to keep your eyes open, to stay awake, stay alert, because you might fall down that hole that's just right a few inches away if you're not careful. We have to pay attention. The practice of mindfulness. The practice of mindfulness encourages us to meet our experience wholeheartedly, to face it, to turn towards it. And mindfulness, when we practice mindfulness, when we bring mindful attention to our experience, even if it feels difficult or we feel sluggish or the mind is dull or we're, we're tired, that very intention itself brings energy. There's a way that that turning towards the experience, whether it's our uh, own mind state or feelings, emotions, sensations, body pain, or way we're relating to another person, just that intention itself brings a kind of wakeful energy. It has a real power to it, the intention itself. I had an experience of this uh, where this really, uh, I really saw how true this was. When A long time ago when I was sitting in an intensive retreat, for uh, about 20 days in Hawaii with Saira Upandita, who is one of the uh, 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 meditation masters from Burma, who definitely has a reputation as being a little bit ruthless and 
some people can uh, report feeling quite fearful of him, one of these, you know, real Zen master types for some of, some of the yogis. Well, one of the uh, encouragements, but it didn't seem like an encouragement, it seemed more like a rule on that retreat, was that we were asked to only sleep for four hours. That was part of it, so that we could be um, awake as many moments of the day as possible to really do our meditation and, and do the investigation into the Dharma. And I don't know how you feel about this, but <laughs> four hours a night is a real stretch for me. And yet, being the good yogi that I am, I decided to take it on. And of course, I was very tired. I was very, very tired through the day. I mean, I'm one of these yogis where about 8.15, right after the Dharma talk, I'm not even sure that I can, you know, keep my eyes open for another moment. I get very, very tired uh, on, on retreat and sometimes, well, this more in the past, not so much in the present, but in the past it certainly was like that and needed to go to sleep very early in the evening. So um, I worked with it, and in feeling the tiredness and working with the tiredness and really investigating into the tiredness, what I found was that in the beginning I had a great deal of aversion to being tired. This was my, the pattern of, that, I, that I carried with, my, with most of my life, not liking that feeling of being tired and really wanting to overcome that. So I, I was very much uh, aware of the, of the aversion, the uh, anger I had towards the tiredness itself within my own mind and my body. But then as I really worked with the aversion and started to soften around it and not identify so much around it and, and start to uh, let it go, what was still there were the conditions of tiredness. It didn't mean that as I worked with the aversion that the tiredness also went. It meant that I was really tired. I was only getting four hours of sleep. But that intention to be present with it, the intention to uh, be mindful of those sensations in the mind, in the body, without the aversion, without the struggle or the reaction to it, I found that being tired was actually very sweet. It felt very sweet for the times of the day that that arose. It wasn't with me all the time. It was just there at different times of the day. And I established a very friendly and warm relationship to the waves of tiredness. And I found that actually there was, with the intention to be mindful in tiredness, there was actually a lot of wakefulness as well. That the mind, my mind wasn't even as dull or as sluggish as I thought it was before I started investigating it. There was an idea, an assumption, some kind of belief about what was actually going on that wasn't true. And through actually taking that careful and precise mindfulness right into that, what was a difficult experience, it became something completely different. It wasn't even, it wasn't anything that I felt I needed to push away or, or get rid of. I would just go with the waves of tiredness. And then they would leave, and then maybe later they'd come back, and then they'd leave, just like waves, riding the waves, the rhythms of the energy of the day. And so it was a wonderful revelation for me and something that I had really altered my relationship to my body and my mind in that way. So we're actually encouraged again and again to turn towards our experience 
And when we turn towards our experience, that means the full range of experience, not only the pleasant experiences, not only the ones we like, but if we really are going to meet what's happening moment to moment, it means that sometimes it's not going to be so pleasant and it's going to have a full range of intensity. It's going to be sometimes be very unpleasant. And we may experience a lot of aversion, a lot of resistance to it, but then there may be the potential to bring that resistance right into our awareness itself, begin to soften that, to work with that, so that we're not just so caught up with it and identified and struggling with that experience of resistance. Find out what's really going on. This is what it means to turn towards our experience with wisdom, with some understanding, rather than with more anger, with more aversion, with more demand and expectation about how we want life to be, how we want ourselves to be, or other people to be. Turning towards experience, moving right into it. This intention is a condition for freedom. This is a condition for freedom. There was a woman in one of my groups today who was talking about a pattern that she was uh, seeing more clearly in her own mind that she uh, was really felt she was starting to come to terms with. And she could see that how she would flip from being present in a moment or two moments, and then she would notice how her mind would go towards something to worry about, something that was going to happen in the future, and then she would start to think about all the ways, all the things she needed to do to take care of that situation so that everything would be okay. And then she would feel the panic and know that she was starting to get very fearful and then break that, come back, feel present again. And as soon as she got quiet after a few moments, then the mind would go get something else. And she could see this pattern of fear that kept gripping her and taking her right out of the present moment. And she was becoming aware that life wasn't being experienced. That what was happening was eluding her because she was finding herself so caught up in the fear reaction. But because of the wisdom that was present, she was able to bring herself back, have some sense of the presence, and then back into the fear, and really starting to see it clearly. And what was arising from that And that clear seeing and the wisdom that she already had was the sense of urgency to really break that pattern, break that cause that was keeping her from really experiencing life in the way she knew was possible. And when she spoke, she had a great deal of urgency and real confidence in her being able to do that. And it was very moving because it was an example of somebody who was seeing very clearly the causes of this suffering in her own mind and wanting to come to terms with it and knowing that she had the tools and the resources within this practice, within this teaching, to do that, to break the spell of those patterns of her mind. It's very, very impressive. So I asked her when she was talking about it, well, if you do that, if you really break that pattern of going off of the present sense of present moment, what might you actually start to see or feel if you're present? Maybe you don't really want to feel it. 
maybe you don't really want to be here. Because it's something that we have to ask ourselves. Because as I, I've been noticing that as I encourage people to really take time to be quiet, to come back to their, their own selves, to spend time in the, in the quiet, to stop being so busy and being involved in doing things, that what it actually means is that we have to look at ourselves. We have to face ourselves and see what's really there. That doesn't mean that what we find is going to be something that we don't like or we can't handle. But we have to find out what is the what is the what's what's powering or what's the momentum, what's what's the the the, the motor behind this pattern that keeps it going. Is there something that we don't really want to feel or really want to look at? It's very important to find out. Sometimes we tell ourselves that not feeling or not being here is easier than facing the truth. We don't know if we really have a capacity to face what's here for us. There's a, a lovely quote. This is by Ani Nin wonderful woman, woman poet. She says, The day came when the risk to stay closed in a tight bud was more difficult than the risk it would take to blossom. The day came when the risk to stay closed in a tight bud was more difficult than the risk it would take to blossom. So sometimes it can feel like a risk when we really allow ourselves to connect with the present moment experience, what's going to happen for us if we're really here, if we really embrace life in all of its formations? I think it's worth the risk. Because what happens for us is that we realize that we just can't live blind anymore. We can't live being half asleep anymore. We want to live life in the way that we know it can be lived. Another strategy that I wanted to point out, which is so common in our culture and so supported that we actually sometimes don't even see it as a coping strategy, and that's the strategy of being busy of being really busy, and it really is something that's being supported so much in our culture right now. But I wonder if so much of that, what, what, what's behind that, is an avoidance to be intimate with life in the way that we can. I found this wonderful um, article. It was in one of the newspapers it was shared with me by one of my colleagues. It's called Sweet Nothing by Amy Rosenthal. It's something she wrote. How are you? Busy. How's work? Busy. How is your week? Good. Busy. You name the question, busy is the answer. Yes, yes, I know. We are all terribly busy doing terribly important things, but I think more often than not, busy is simply the most acceptable knee-jerk response. 
certainly there are more interesting, more original, and more accurate ways to answer the question. The question, how are you? I'm hungry for a burrito. I'm envious of my best friend. I'm frustrated by everything that's broken in my house. I'm itchy. Yet busy stands alone as the easiest way of summarizing all that you do and all that you are. I am busy. It's, it's the short way of saying or implying my time is filled, my phone does not stop ringing, and you, therefore, should think well of me. Have people always been this busy? Did cavemen think they were this busy, too? This week is crazy. I've got about ten caves to go on. Can I meet you by the fire next week? I have a hunch that there is a direct correlation between the advent of coffee bars and the increase in busyness. Look at us. We're all pros now at hailing cabs, making Xeroxes, carpooling, performing surgery with a to-go, with a to-go cup in hand. We're skittering about like hyperactive gerbils, high not just on caffeine, but on caffeine's luscious byproduct, productivity. Ah, the joy of doing, accomplishing, crossing off. As kids, our stock answer to meet every question, what did you do at school today? Or what's new was nothing. In our country's history, there have been exactly seven kids who responded with a statement other than nothing. And then in parentheses it says, and three of those were named Hanson. Now, if anybody understands that, you can let me know later, because I don't know what that means. Then, somewhere on the way to adulthood, we each took a 180-degree turn. We cashed in our nothing for busy. I'm starting to think that, like youth, the word nothing is wasted on the young. Maybe we should try reintroducing it into our grown-up vernacular. Nothing. I say, it, I say it a few times, and I can feel myself becoming more quiet, decaffeinated, <laughs> zenish, nothing. Now I'm picturing emptiness, a white blanket, a couple of ducks gliding on a still pond, nothing, nothing. How did we get so far away from it? It's a really good question. How did we get so far away from it? Just being able to rest sometimes in that nothingness. I know sometimes lately, you know, well, in the last few years, sometimes I will go to somebody's house and I'll just sit on a couch and do nothing. You know, just I won't even talk won't do anything, not reading a magazine, I'm not asking for something, I'm just sitting there doing nothing. And sometimes it feels really odd, you know, like people must be looking at me strangely or something, why don't you do something, (laughs) you know? And sometimes in my house, I'll just sit down for five minutes, do nothing, you know, not even meditate, you know, not, not pick up something that I think I have to do or produce or just do nothing. And those moments are becoming so precious when the mind, my mind, is not filled with future, moving into the future, worrying about the future, having tend to something, worrying about the past, but really just doing nothing. And I think sometimes we even have to be careful that meditation can become just another doing, 
something else that we do, we put it on our list and we cross it off. Well, got that out of the way, you know. And so sometimes it might be worthwhile just to sit and not think that you're doing something or that what you're doing is going to get you anywhere or that uh, this moment is productive in some way or it's going to improve us in some way. Today at lunch we were talking about the what's called, well at least it was called today, um, the second day mind. Sometimes people who come on retreat have this kind of concept of the idea of what it means to be on retreat for the, on the second day. And the second day can sometimes be <clears throat> a lot of sleepiness and restlessness and the busy mind and <clears throat> some doubt and wondering why we're here and if we want to be here and... <clears throat> And then the response will be, well, it'll be better on the third day. You know, on the third day, things start to settle in, and then on the fourth day, things start to open out. And it's almost like the second day mind becomes the day for waiting. Waiting for that time or that experience when things are going to start opening out. It's going to get better. You know? And we just sort of get through, you know, and I hear this, hear this from people, you know, got to just get through these first couple of days and, and then, then the retreat will start, you know. In some ways it's like postponing. We postpone the retreat until certain experiences start to happen. We start to feel a certain way or the mind starts to, uh, uh, show up, manifest in a certain way and then we have a sense that things are happening. And things are happening in order to get certain benefits, in order to begin improving ourselves or to get something from what we're doing here uh, so that we can feel like it's worthwhile, that our time here is worthwhile. And I think what's not really seen in that is that there is a subtle aversion, and sometimes not so subtle aversion, to the present moment, to what's happening. We don't really want to be here. We don't really want to meet this experience the way it is, even if we feel restless, we feel tired, we feel uh, irritable, the mind's wandering a lot, we think a lot about the past, a lot about the future. We haven't arrived. We haven't arrived. But what would it mean for us if we shifted our relationship to the second day, which is now almost over, And we say, okay, I have arrived. This is it. This is it. Just the way it is in this moment. My mind is wandering. I feel really awful in my body. I have a lot of tension. I have a lot of pain. I don't really want to be here. There is a lot of doubt arising. But this is it. This is what's happening. Does it really have to be different? There's a conditions, in this case, the conditions of mind, the conditions of body, do they have to be different for us to experience an inner sense of ease or an inner sense of contentment, even in the middle of that? Without postponing, without hoping, without wanting, without expecting or demanding, which comes up a lot, but just to rest into it just as it is, there may be a real surprise that happens as we do that. I'm not going to tell you what it is. (laughs) 
Because I don't actually know what it is, but it changes for every person. There's something that starts to reveal itself right in the midst of those conditions themselves. My teacher and the co-founder of this center that we're sitting in, Joseph Goldstein, he likes to share what he calls his secret mantras. And so on different retreats he'll say, I have a secret mantra that I'm going to share with you. And one of his secret mantras that he shared with us on one retreat was to say to yourself, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. And it's powerful. It's powerful when we can remember to remind ourselves to come back to the moment just as it is and say, it's okay. Because just then, the struggle, whether it's a strong, overt struggle, or whether it's very subtle and maybe so subtle that it's not even conscious, just starts to melt away. And we find ourselves sinking into present moment. And as we sink into present moment, more and more is revealed. More and more is available to us as we understand, as we learn, as we grow, as we know how to meet life in a wise way, in a compassionate way, in an engaged way. And we're really here for it. I'm going to end there. I had actually quite a lot more that I wanted to talk about, but maybe I'll save that for another night. So let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.